I think I mentioned before that I was uh, educated at the fine academic institution of the UT of K. And uh, generally, I wasted my time there um, as, <laughs> as a generality. And I think I've said also that I uh, unfortunately majored in psychology, which was a colossal waste of time. And I learned almost nothing. Um, but I did, as I was preparing for this, remember one thing. I didn't actually learn anything. I just thought that this thing I remembered is kind of cool. So there is an experiment done by these researchers where they took uh, pigeons and put them in a cage, one pigeon, one cage, and they would release to the pigeon a food pellet. But they would release it at a completely random time, and they did that over the course of time. They released food pellet, and then a random amount of time, two seconds, another food pellet, three minutes, another food pellet. You know, I don't know. I can't do random in my head. So they would, they would do that, and just, they wanted to see what the pigeon would do. What will this pigeon do when it can't predict when sustenance is going to come, when provision will, will arrive? It can't see the hand that feeds it. It can't do anything to, uh, to predict the unseen nature of this transaction. And they thought, we're going to watch these pigeons and see what they do. How do they react to them? What behaviors they exhibit? Because pigeons are animals. Also, humans are animals. And whatever pigeons do with unseen, like to, to try and control or to however they react to unseen forces, that's how humans do. That's religion. We're going to find out the basis of religion. That was the point. Of, that's what they're kind of going after, which is you know, why psychology was fairly worthless at UT Knoxville. It was all based on evolutionary uh, biology, natural selection, and all the rest. So it was interesting, though, that after, over a course of time, all of the pigeons did the same thing. They did the same thing. We're talking today about, uh, about how we deal with the unseen. How do you and I deal with the unseen? This passage, uh, these passages are parallels. Um, the John 6, I had, we had to kind of chop them all up to just get the basic story across because they're both really long, Numbers 11 and John 6. But in John 6, it's the passage of the feeding of the 5,000. And, uh, and in Numbers 11, it's obviously the, um, the feeding of God's people with quail. And, uh, and so they're... The point that we are looking at is um, how do God, how are God's people to live in relation to what is unseen? So the original audience would have, uh, for John six, you know, somebody starts telling this story this one time. You know, uh, they were they were telling these stories before John wrote them down. Somebody saying John is maybe telling some friends this one time. We were out in the middle of nowhere. And there were all these people, and they got really hungry. And then, bam, there was so much food. And those people who first heard it would have grabbed each other like, oh, no. Because what happened? They're, they're catching the resonance with Numbers 11, and they know their Bibles. This is a commercial to read your Bible. You're, knowing your Old Testament will, will enliven and uh, enlighten your New Testament. They're saying, oh, no. Because in Numbers 11, there were this big crowd of people, and they were really hungry. And then there was provision that far outweighed the need, right? There, you'll have so much quail, it'll come out your nostrils. But in this, in, in John's, uh, in Jesus' story, they collect 12 basketfuls of leftovers. So they're thinking, oh no, here comes the plague. 
Here comes the play because that was the pattern. That was what they saw. So they're they're wondering. They're wondering. Um, there's a plague at the end of this one because God has always wanted his children to believe his word more than what their eyes can see. God has always wanted his children to believe his word more than what their eyes can see. You know, there's two basic ways as, of, of, as humans that we deal with the unseen. Traditional cultures deal with the unseen and they, they say acknowledge there, is, there are unseen forces at work in this world. There is a demon in that person that I don't like. There is a spirit of the tree out there. There are gods who are manipulating me like pieces on a chessboard. And, they feel, and they're out of control. And they become, and, and a traditional culture, we would say, becomes very superstitious. Superstition is just keeping tally marks on an unseen checkboard. You know, if I offer this sacrifice check, now, uh, now that's a payment for an unseen force. If I perform this ritual check, uh, a little tally mark there, I'm just building my case against a force that I can't see to maybe pay them off or bribe them. That's not terribly common right now. Where we, the waters that we swim in are much more like uh, the UT of K, University of Tennessee, Knoxville, for those of you who don't do the uh, briefs. Um, in our modern culture, anything that is unseen is, is just unreal. It's not, it's not substantive. It doesn't matter. We live in a culture that, that only prioritizes the tangible, the measurable, the seeable. Right? So that we ignore the unseen and live by the rational. We ignore the unseen and we live by what we say is evident and rational. What can you see in nature? That's how you should live. Well, this is not going so well for us. It's not at all, in fact. Um, Annie Dillard wrote a book called Pilgrim by Tinker Creek. Have you all heard of this? As a young woman, she went to go live by a creek in Virginia, uh, expecting to be rejuvenated and refreshed and, and, and watching nature just up close and studying and, and seeing if she could get more in harmony, more in tune with nature. And what she found appalled her. She said, there is no human who behaves as badly as a praying mantis. Because nature is completely based on violence. Nature is fully predicated upon the fact that the strong prey on the weak. The strong take advantage of the weak. So if we live as humans, you know, just like my professors at UT said, pigeons are animals, humans are animals. You'll, you just, we should just live kind of by the law of nature like animals. Then if that's the case, then why are we upset when the strong prey on the weak? It doesn't make any sense. There's a, uh, a movie that came out a few years ago. I think it was like 2013. And uh, I'm not sure that I recommend it, not because it was disturbing and really or anything. It was just, it was like a C plus maybe. But the movie is called Cloud Atlas. And it has Tom Hanks in it, so I'm going to see it because I really like Tom Hanks. Um, but the movie, this is great. This is a perfect picture of this. This movie deals exactly with this tension that there is some scene, there, you know, if we live like what we see, then we're going to violate, violate, who, who decided that's a violation? The strong are going to make 
use of the weak. The, the, uh, the recurring theme through the movie is the weak are meat, the strong do eat. So all the bad guys say that. The weak are meat, the strong do eat. Because, uh, and so it tells this story of all these different vignettes from like early 1800s um, England and, the, and the, the slave trade that's going on. And then it jumps to 1970s America where um, fossil fuel uh, companies are trying to cover up um, are trying to expose atomic power and and and, uh, and make them look bad, and then to present day and even into the future. There's all these vignettes where some strong individual or system is taking advantage of the weak, and then somebody's got to stand up to them. The strong are meat; the weak do eat. But let me ask you something: like if we come from nothing and we go to nothing, if we are simply big-brained animals then why, why do we think that the strong shouldn't take advantage of the weak? Why does that disturb you and me? Why does somebody make a movie like Cloud Atlas that has no reference to anything outside of my life from the time from womb to tomb, as the movie says over and over? We belong to each other, and everything we do echoes into the future. Why do I care what echoes into the future? If I'm just trying to pass on my genes... Why would I want to disadvantage myself? I'll just, I'll take what you've got. Thank you very much. You know, we don't look at the leopard and say that he violated the gazelle because he chose the young one or the sick one to attack. Uh, You didn't give it a fair shot. You should have chose the adult who was fat. We don't think that's, there's no violation there. That's how nature's supposed to work. If we're just part of nature, then why aren't we comfortable with that? But we're not. Something in us screams against that. But it's an unseen reality, this idea of human rights. They make no sense. It's an unseen reality. We desperately want to acknowledge that truth of the unseen, but we're always going to be consistent unless we finally acknowledge, unless we finally say, this doesn't make any sense unless there is a God and he has spoken this. Unless there is a word. So the first we just talked about, I'll see it. I'll believe it when I see it. But now we're going to go to, I'll believe it when I hear it. I'll believe it when I hear it. Peter's words in this passage have always echoed in my head. and I love them. At the end, he says, um, Jesus turns to his disciples and says, maybe, sadly, he turns to the twelve. Are you going to leave me too? I don't know how, I mean, maybe he's just angry. Maybe he's kind of strong and feeling confident but it maybe he's sad right then because a lot of his disciples have walked away this is too hard of a saying and he turns to him and says that are you going to leave too and peter says to him where else would we go you have the words of eternal life you know what i love about peter in that moment about what he says it means that i don't have to get it all it means that the all i have to do is say jesus you're the best game in town I'm not going to go anywhere else. That's, that's as far as I have to go. It means that this whole Christian thing, this whole following Jesus thing, this whole rescue of God for the world thing, doesn't have to make perfect intellectual sense. I don't believe it does violence against a human intellect, but I don't think it wraps everything up in a pretty bow. And I think what we're hearing here is that's okay. Where else am I going to go? I can't, I can't live on what I see because then I'll just become violent against the weak. I can't live on what I suspect to be true, then I'll just become superstitious, making ticks on an invisible tally board. 
You're the only game in town, Jesus. You're the only game in town. We don't have to get it all. I have a a dangerous, uh, treacherous level of competency about most things. I, I know just enough to do some real damage. So like computers. I know just enough to like, I'm going to partition my hard drive and then I'm going to install like a Windows program on one part of the hard drive and then, and then, I'll do, and then I ended up like wiping my entire hard drive. It was just done. Like I, all of it was gone. I didn't even have an operating system on the thing. It was bad. But eventually, I mean, after like hours, I got it figured out. You know, so it took a long time, just enough to be dangerous. The worst is with house projects, because something that should take 30 minutes, and Rachel's like, good, do that real quick, and then, I'm, you know, then it'll be time to eat, or then it'll be time to leave. Or, like, got it, good. Four hours later, and three trips to the hardware store, I just finished it, but I did it. But I did some serious violence to our family in the, you know, in the meantime. <laughs> I know just enough to be dangerous. I feel the same way with the scriptures. I have a friend, Jerry, who says, you know, my faith is often pretty strong until I start reading the Word. And then I'm just like, what is this? It can just be so disturbing sometimes. I read Numbers 11, and frankly, I'm disturbed. I don't like that. I don't like that God said, eat it till it comes out your nostrils, and then I'll send you a plague. That's rough. I don't get that. But where else am I going to go? Jesus, you have the words of eternal life. You know, God is not concerned about an intellectual system here. Otherwise, he wouldn't have based the whole thing on love and faith. This whole idea of God moving towards us is based on the fact that he decided under no compulsion from anybody else, nobody persuaded him or or coerced him or anything, he just decided to put his love onto humans who don't deserve it. You can't describe that. You can't understand that. You can't can't decide... um, you, you can't philosophize that. It's just something that is, and you've got to either accept it or not. And the other part is faith. Faith, you, it's, it's acting like something unseen is true. That's faith. And the whole thing is based on this love we can't understand and faith that we can't describe. Faith in things we can't see. He's not real worried about your intellectual coherence. That's, that's a worry that we bring to, to all of this, uh, not one that he does. I love Peter's statement, where else are we going to go? Jesus, you have the word of eternal life. The second thing I love about Peter's statement, is it seems to be a bit of a non sequitur. We read the passage where Jesus is talking about meat and bread and food, and you've got to eat my flesh, and then, and then you'll live, and I am the bread of heaven, and if you eat me, then you'll, you'll live forever, and you'll never be hungry. And then he says, um, then he says, are you guys going to leave me too? And Peter, in essence, says, all these people may not want to eat your flesh, Jesus, but where else are we going to go? You have the blank of life. What do you think he's going to say? You have the, this is easy. You can say it. You think he's going to say flesh. You think he's going to say bread. Right? That's what the whole context is. We're not talking about words, Peter. But he gets it. Peter gets it in this moment, that what God is after is that his people would trust his words more than what their eyes could see. He gets it. He brings it back to the word. The word that we have to base on. Because like we said, if you base your life on what you see, then you'll become a violent 
perpetrator against the weak. If you base your life on on, on what you suspect to be true, you become superstitious. Now, I think most of us probably live in the superstitious world. Not many of us are just like willfully violating the weak. Although, have you ever lied to somebody? That's living by what you see. That's living after the pattern of what's seen. Do you know? When you lie to somebody, you're taking something that you have knowledge, they do not have that knowledge, and you're manipulating that. You're using your power over them to get what you want from them. It's just, it's, that's, the, that's the cheetah eating the gazelle. I'm going to use my resources against your lack of resources so that I can get what I want. So some of us do live that way, right? All of us do at certain times. But a lot of us live in this world of superstition. There are no more superstitious people on the world than athletes. Are you aware of this? Athletes. I think it's because so much of athletics it, it in some ways involves this realm of the unseen. Right? You can practice and practice and practice, but at the end of it, athletics is about instinctive movements and activities. Like a, a, a baseball player trying to hit a 105-mile-an-hour fastball you just got to, you, you can't consider, there's not reflection, it's got to happen. And so athletes are all the time worried, will my body do what I want it to do? They're not worried about, do I know the right stuff? Do I have the knowledge to do this? They're, they're, they start to worry, will my body do what, it wants, what I want it to? That's why baseball players go into slumps. It's not because they don't know what to do. It's just this, weird, what happens? We don't know. It's why shooters go cold in basketball and like, the shots just aren't falling. What's happening? Because a lot of athletics deals with the unseen. It's about instinctual, quick, quick motions that you don't get to reflect on. And so athletes often develop um, superstitions. The most famous, maybe the most famous one, belongs to probably the most famous athlete of the last, I don't know, 50 years at least, Michael Jordan. Anybody know what his superstition was? He started an entire fashion fad, or not a fad, but something that's maintained to today. Do you know why basketball players wear long shorts? You remember pictures of basketball players in the 70s? How short? Can you make with your hands how their shorts were? Like that. Thank you. Do what? Not without obscenity. It's dangerous, man. I don't know what they were thinking. But here comes Michael Jordan in the early 80s. And suddenly all that changes. And people are wearing long basketball shorts and baggy basketball shorts. Do you know why? Michael Jordan, who won a championship at a school that will go unnamed, Catherine, UNC, wore his UNC basketball shorts under his Bulls shorts. So he had to, buy, he had to get bigger shorts so that he could fit his UNC shorts under him. He was superstitious. His, his performance was somehow connected to that, and he did it always. Serena Williams, one of the more, most superstitious athletes uh, operating today, who lost, right? She didn't win this weekend, Australian Open, big deal. Uh, Serena Williams, among a number of things, her entire day is regimented. But one of the things that I found most disturbing was that she wears the same pair of socks for an entire uh, Grand Slam. Like if she's competing, same socks the whole time. That has nothing to do with her performance. Why does she do it? It's superstition. She's trying to make tally marks on this unseen board to assure herself against unseen forces. It's superstition. But you and I do that too. We've got a lot of superstition in us. We have a lot of things we do to try and exert control over the unseen forces in our lives. 
Do you know what those pigeons did? The pigeons, all of them, all of them, in response to random food pellets, randomized foods, every one of them, on a relatively short amount of time, developed a, a specific behavior. They would do something. So maybe they would stand in the corner, and, and, and then the food pellet came, and then they got. Maybe they would stand on one leg. Maybe they would flap in successions of threes. They would do something. All of these pigeons developed some kind of behavior that we have to assume they believed they were influencing this random dropping of a food pellet. That's superstition. That's what it is. Right? And I'm not a pigeon, but I do agree with Michael Scott. <laughs> when he says, I'm not superstitious, but I am a little bit stitious. <laughs> Dishes. Quickly, um, about superstition. You and I are superstitious. Picture, uh, I mean, what do you do? What, what you do with, with your guilty feelings? Those are often about superstition. Right? Because it's what you assume to be true of the unseen realm. When I feel, when I pass that stranded motorist and don't stop, start to think, oh man, here comes my flat tire. You know, when I don't do my Bible reading in that morning, like, I'm going to fail this test for sure. Or maybe I'm not going to play well when I go play basketball or whatever. How about this one? You went to a party and maybe you drank too much. Or maybe you, you were kind of lewd in your joking. and Or maybe you gossiped. Of this party. But you had a great time. Like the party was awesome. And you went home. And, and on your drive home. What are you thinking? This is going to come back to get me. Something's going to happen. This is not good. i got to control this. I've got to, I better make some tally marks on this unseen board. I better get up tomorrow and read my Bible. I better pray. I better, I better be extra nice to my family or my roommates. See, all of us are superstitious. We try and control the unseen. So we, don't, we live by either what's seen and we become violent, or we live by what we assume to be true of the unseen and we become superstitious. But we're told again and again in God's Word that you have to live by what He says. We have to live by revelation. We have to live by the Word. We have to live by what is revealed. Finally, uh, so we did, I believe it when I see it. I'll believe it when I hear it, and now I'll believe it when I eat it. I said at the beginning that all the original readers of this story knew something bad was on its way. When they saw, there's all these parallels of, of a, um, a hungry crowd. Uh, somebody saying, where is all the food going to come from? There's just no way. Um, and, and food being provided in abundance. And then in Numbers 11 comes the curse. It comes a plague afterwards. You know, it's hard to, this is, like I said, that's a tough one for me to swallow. Are you guys, anybody listening to the current season of the podcast, Serial? Anybody? Okay, a lot more than at Lula, <laughs> which was one. So this, this season, you may have heard of this new story about Bo Bergdahl. 
who was a, uh, a soldier in Afghanistan who, wor- who walked off of his, he deserted his post at his forward operating base, or FOB. I'm learning all these cool acronyms. Um, he walked off. He's a deserter. Uh, the Taliban captured him. He's been, he was in prison for five years with them. Finally, uh, the, uh, our government uh, you know, uh, negotiated a swap. We gave them five of their prisoners for him. And, uh, and now he's facing a court-martial that may land him in jail for the rest of his life. He may get that kind of, uh, that kind of punishment for his actions. And yours and my fo- favorite politician, I'll leave you to guess who, said... In the old days, we just shot deserters. So you can guess who said that. If that is the penalty for turning your back on the United States government and its military, then what's the right penalty for turning your back on the the king of the universe? Does that make sense? It's still painful. But there is a curse that's demanded here when God's people live by sight and not by his word. When they grumble against him. I said there's, these are parallel passages and people are expecting they're expecting the curse to come. But in this story in John, Jesus is presented as the solution to all, to all these earlier problems. You see, he says, your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and died, but I am the true bread of heaven. He's presenting himself as the sustenance for God's people that will, that will sustain them, that will, that will feed them from now until all eternity. It says your fathers feasted on quail, but you need to feast on my flesh. Jesus is the true food from God. And God's people, he's even God's people mess it up in Numbers 11, right? They live by what they see instead of what God says, that I'll take care of you, I'll provide for you, I'm going to guide you. And they say, we wish we were back in Egypt, we wish we had food. They grumble against them. This is a pattern in Scripture. This is another commercial for reading your Bible. You'll hear it. If, uh, listen, and you may think of stories that we've read over, these last, over this last month in Genesis. This is the pattern. Saw it, took it, gave it, curse. Saw it, took it, gave it, curse. You recognize this pattern? First time it happens is in the garden. Eve saw that the fruit was good, it was pleasing to the eye and good for food. And she took it and she gave some to her husband who was with her. And God cursed them. And later you have Sarai who sees that the Lord is not keeping his promise. She is not conceived. And so she takes Hagar, her servant, and gives it to uh, Abraham, her husband. And that relationship becomes a curse in that family. And just in case you think it's all girls who are the problem, this is the same pattern with David and Bathsheba. He saw that she looked good. He took her. And then he was cursed and his baby died that he had with Bathsheba. This is a problem when God's people live by what they see. God's people in this Numbers 11 passage are living by what they see. We don't see. All we see is this manna, they say. But in this story, it's Jesus who saw it, took it, gave it. He sees the crowds, it says in John 6. And he's moved not with doubt, but with compassion towards them. He takes the bread and the fish, and he doesn't hoard them in greed, but he, uh, and, but he gives it in generosity and concern. 
You see, Jesus is the true Israel. He's the right, he's the, the pure and right Israel. He lived the life we should have lived. He lives by faith, by the word, not by what he sees. So where's the curse? In Numbers 11, Moses said, this burden that you've given me of this people is too heavy to carry. Kill me now. And in the garden, in the Passover, not far from this one, Jesus would pray to his God, I will take the burden of this people. You may kill me now. See, Jesus proclaims, you will eat my flesh and drink my blood. That's curse language. That's always curse language when your flesh is eaten and blood poured out. That's language that happens to people who turn their backs on God like you and I do when we, when we pray on the weak and when we live by superstition instead of by revelation. So when, God, when Jesus does this, he says there, he's telling us in essence, not only I'm going to provide for you forever and there is no more curse. And so when I start to doubt, when I come to the Bible with my just enough knowledge to be dangerous and I start to doubt, it means I don't have to grumble against God. I can bring that to him in a conversation because I don't have to fear a curse falling on me for my doubts. It means I can come to him because I know once and for all and grounded that Jesus is the one who saw it, took it, gave it, and took the curse. He provided and he received the curse in my stead. So I don't have to, I don't have to live under that anymore. I get to live under his protection. So I can come to him with my doubts. I can come to his word and say, I don't know. I don't know. But I'm going to trust what you say more than what my eyes see. The death of Jesus is the proof that God loves me and is for me. And I know that through his word. Through his word. Where else am I going to go? Where else are you going to go? You can't live by what you see. You can't live by what you suspect to be true. Jesus is the word of life.